Welcome to the Sheila Kamra Extractive uh, Podcast. Today I'm having a conversation with Nyoma Wuku. Nyoma is a senior counsel at the World Bank, where she is also the legal advisor to the Energy and Extractives Unit, having worked on mineral development agreement negotiations at the top U.S. law firm prior to joining the bank. She conceived and laid the African Mining Legislation Atlas, a project that was jointly administered with the African Legal Support Facility of the African Development Bank, where Nioma and her colleagues remain involved in finding ways to make beneficial use of this very important platform. Nioma, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Sheila. It's a privilege to have this conversation with you. Fantastic. So I, I wanted to talk about this, you know, fourth industrial revolution and, and how it's impacting mining. And so let's start with that question. You know, is the fourth industrial revolution impacting mining in any meaningful way, in your opinion? Yeah. So, Sheila, you know, I'd, I'd say certainly. Um, and for the purpose of our audience here, I think it's important to start um, with a common foundational basis by defining what we mean by that. Um, and even a simple Google search would generate a McKinsey 2022 paper on this topic. And it basically speaks of the fourth industrial revolution as one that is being driven by disruptive innovation. So, and that includes the rise of data and connectivity, human machine interactions and improvement in robotics. That's their language. Um, I should say that about five and a half years ago, this was in early spring of 2018 here in the US, I was fortunate to attend a series of meetings on disruptive technologies in Seattle, Washington in the US. <clears throat> and we met with companies who are at the cutting edge of a number of these types of technologies. And we had these um, you know, VIP tours of demonstrations of these kinds of technologies. There were um, testing autonomous surface vehicles, and this will bring to bear in the mining sector as we, as we, as we discuss this. Um, also autonomous aerial vehicles. So auto autonomous surface vehicles are basically driverless uh, vehicles and autonomous aerial vehicles, are, you know, more or less, you know, um, vertical takeoff and landing systems, or, you know, basically drones um, um, is, a, is a good example of, of these. Um, there's artificial intelligence, there's digital twins, which is a technology that allows you to create 3D or in a sense, a digital representation of something in reality. Um, and we'll talk about that in the context of mining as well. And uh, in that environment, we're able to discuss a lot on the governance and legal issues surrounding these. I think it's important to note one thing. Um, that is also a context issue. Not everything new is innovation. So when we say is the uh, fourth industrial revolution impacting mining, there has been innovation in mining. There's always been innovation in mining, as you can imagine, from the days of Masamusa to today. And so it is not all innovation that is, you know, disruptive in the way that we talk about disruptive technologies in the fourth industrial revolution. There. Uh, technologies that are sustaining. So basically, you know, they're not cutting edge, they're just getting something better over time. I always use the example of going from a manual car to an automatic car, for example, in terms of the steering. 
Um, but disruptive is the one that generally, I want to say, turns things upside down, Sheila. Um, but um, in a paper I wrote in 2019, I talked about how it changes what we mine, who we mine, and how minerals are extracted or even traded. So the, that definition really suggests that these kinds of technologies are shaped by microcultures. So basically the ecosystem of a particular sector or market or geography. So, you know, one of the questions I'd like us to at some point take a look at is this threshold question that when, it, when technology is disruptive, we must always ask this question that, you know, is a threshold question. What are the risks of dislocation and the options for mitigation? So these are things that we should talk about in the context of policy, how stakeholders should be thinking about it, governments, industry, uh, et cetera. But to give uh, a you know very brief answer to the question, yes, it is um, impacting the mining sector. And I'd love to give some examples of um, uh, instances where that is happening. All right. So uh, you've said a mouthful. So let's see if we can take a couple of things one at a time. Uh, I'm going to start first with the notion of disruption, uh, because you, you put a lot of emphasis on the difference between progressively uh, moving from, say, a manual to an automated system. Uh, and, and you are saying that in itself is just an evolution. It's not a revolution. Uh you know, when when we apply that to the space of mining, what are we seeing which is fundamentally potentially disruptive? I would say that um, these notions of um, the use of artificial intelligence, um, full autonomous systems are disruptive. So there's a difference when we give a mine worker, for example, a mechanized tool that makes it easier to go from a shovel to, you know, a, some kind of drilling equipment that um, is mechanized. Um, that is different from having a machine that can do exactly what that mine worker can do, thereby displacing the mine worker. So in mining today, we have companies who are able to provide a full fleet of autonomous equipment that would include the drills, the blasters, the loaders, um, amongst others. Um, you have technology that creates, you know, one of the examples I gave in terms of these technologies, the digital twin, some people call it the HoloLens. Um, they create 3D um, sort of, uh, so three-dimensional model of an entire mining environment so that, um, you know, the operators can actually work on the mines with these autonomous systems from a remote location. So this changes the mining environment. It changes the mining ecosystem. Um, but there's also cases where um, we have wearable materials that can give us information about the health of a mine worker who is underground in a way that we were never able to have before. Um, and so these are revolutionary because um, it is not just a, a, a single step um, above where we were before. It's something that completely changes the mining ecosystem, including the mining operations itself, uh, the, the locality 
of, of the minds themselves um, entirely. So, for example, when you think about an example that I have is the Siama mine, um, underground gold mine in eastern Mali, southeastern Mali, um, is a fully automated mine, right? So it has all of these examples that I've spoken about. Um, and of course, some of the issues there is then you have these machines that have totally replaced workers in that mine environment. However, there's the other argument, um, the on the other hand argument about the health and safety of mine workers um, and how these uh, technologies have reduced accidents dramatically um, and ensured better sort of safe environments uh, for mine workers. Yeah, so no, um, yeah. You, you, there's a there's a lot of truth uh, to that uh, because there is a bit of a, a a dilemma there that on one hand you solve the problem of uh, worker safety, but also you can reach more uh, minerals because traditionally mines were abundant because it was just too deep to be safe and also to just operationalize in an efficient way. But now with robots, uh, robots can go to any depth. But but I have to ask, what are the legal and social implications then in your mind of replacing humans who otherwise make a living uh, on the mines with these uh, man-made uh, digital you know, tools? Sheila, that is the core question, and thanks for asking that question. Um, you know, there are a lot of papers out there about the future of work, and this is um, uh, an issue that is facing not only the developing world, actually, but also industrialized societies um, in terms of the future of work. Um, when we look at this, and that is where that question I, I put out at the beginning in terms of a threshold question of the risks of dislocation, and what are the options for mitigation? How is policy? How should laws um, be addressing these? Um, following the, the Africa mining vision, which was this, um, I'm going to call it in a sense, a declaration uh, by the Africa Union on a new approach to the mining sector. Um, this was in 2009. You had a sweep of countries, about one in two uh, within the first decade, changing their mining laws to adapt to increase what then was called the shared value approach, a shared value paradigm to the mining. Um, how do we benefit a broader set of society um, and not focus just on the royalty, um, the, the royalties that 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 um, that governments receive from from the mining sector? And so there was the notion of uh, local content provisions that started to come into mining laws, the requirement that citizens are hired and not just citizens are hired for the low skilled jobs, that there is a progressive, um, in a sense, displacement of uh, foreigners um, as companies train citizens to um, get much more technically adept and, and doing much more complex work. And so then you have this automation that has basically um, turning that, that concept um, sort of upside down. And so the question then becomes now, what do, 
what, what do governments do? How do they uh, respond to this? And of course, this is also within the context of the demographic dividend, the notion that, you know, um, by 20, I believe it's 2050 or so, Africa's youth in terms of the, the, the labor force, uh, the young people will basically um, outnumber those who are out of out of the labor force. So how do we utilize all of this labor when we have automation? And I don't think, to be honest, that both industrialized nations and, you know, developing nations um, have come up with an answer. That is still an ongoing discussion. Um, how do we balance this? But I must say, and this is sort of a, a very um, optimistic part of my reasoning, uh, recently, there has also been a trend in a lot of African mining laws incorporating more and more ownership of mine operations in their laws. So in terms of equity participation, and there are debates to be had about, you know, are governments equipped? Are they skilled? Are they knowledgeable? Do they have the capacity for such a participation? But that participation, the increased participation, I think is actually um, in some ways targeting intentionally or unintentionally some of these issues in terms of how to retain ownership, how to participate, um, you know, in the dividends of this new form of mining, if we may put it that way. Um, because ultimately it seems like if we leave the disruptive technologies in the mining sector as is, the greatest beneficiary will be the shareholders, the, the capital invested will receive its returns because you have machines doing the work that we're talking about. There are benefits to machines doing this work, but ultimately, um, you know, the labor uh, is then um, suffers. So um, can governments find ways of being able to still um, get more resources, get more returns out of these investments that then can be channeled back um, into uh, the country, into the citizens? Uh, I think there's a possibility, but the, the mechanisms, the instruments for doing that is still undefined. And I think that is the conversation in a paper that I presented uh, in 2019 um, at a conference on mining. Actually, I was making the argument that it's so important that stakeholders start to come together a lot more, that governments and um, industry start to really share strategies um, as to how best, and not just uh, industry and government, civil society, um, you know, academia, all come together, um, form, uh, a, basically create a platform for sharing ideas as to how best to address, you know, the impact of this disruption, uh, if I may put it that way. I don't know whether that answers some of your questions, but I think, you know, the seeing state equity participation in policies, I think is really, um, one of the critical elements. And of course, the drive for ESG, you also start to see um, much more, uh, um, much more of um, penalties, stiffer penalties for violation of some of the ESG requirements. And I think part of that is basically indicating that we now have technology to ensure a much more safer environment. So there are stiffer penalties for um, violations of these uh, requirements. Um, in mining laws. So I think, again, these are little ways in which mining policy is beginning to communicate. I wouldn't say 
um, necessarily address, but it is interacting with um, the disruptive nature of um, of these technologies in the mining industry. Yeah, I guess that's uh, that's what you meant by uh, recognizing that there are ways uh, through which there's a dislocation from the previous construct, and that with that dislocation comes risk. And that you know, legal uh, interventions, among others, and policy interventions, among others, are some of the ways through which we could mitigate. Because, uh, based on the picture you paint of the new mining ecosystem, what it suggests, and and I want to test your your thinking here. What it suggests is that progressively policies designed to extract value, uh, laws designed to extract value through either corporate tax or for that matter, royalty or equity are somewhat misaligned with current reality. And that if we just make that assumption that the mining ecosystem stays the same, what we are missing is that in effect, the total wealth that has been created the total wealth from which we want to have a cut has changed, grown, and that in the new dispensation, unless we change things, uh, the balance is going to favor those who invest in the capital. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, Sheila. That is what I'm saying. And another thing I should mention also in this is that you start to also see um, new mining laws. I mean, actually, we've been working on mining laws in you know in Sierra Leone there's um a draft bill in Zimbabwe uh, there's a new law that's been passed in 2023 in Mali um you know Burundi is coming up with one because of his nickel reserve it's important to know that a number like a number of these laws are also um being reformed um in response always let me first say that always Reform in the mining uh, industry, uh, in the mining sector, is usually catalyzed by multifaceted issues. So it's, you know, domestic. It is regional. It is global trends. Um, also pressures from, you know, corporates. Pressures from, you know, international civil society, etc. There are a number of issues that catalyze uh, reform in the mining sector, but. A huge part of this is the global movement for decarbonization. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, the green minerals actually is, you know, a, a, a new phrase that's, um, you know, gained a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of currency. Uh, and when you think about Burundi um, beginning to reform is uh, mining laws is doing so because it has, um, you know, uh, nickel, like reserves for nickel. So you have countries that have lithium reserves. Um, you know, of course, we have um, DRC as sort of the quintessence, having pretty much the largest reserve of cobalt and you know huge reserve of copper um, in that country. A lot of countries with these green minerals beginning to really look at how to respond to the demand, the global demand for these minerals. So you start to see language about quote strategic minerals. Right, strategic minerals, and in in some ways, how to ring fence strategic minerals so that they are further regulated in a special way. But yet, we are still not quite clear on how to 
further regulate minerals that are declared as strategic. But I think that is another way in which policy is trying, attempting to engage, to interact with the disruptive nature of these technologies in the mining sector. So uh, you are right that if governments do not take um, a certain level of intentionality and, and thought um, into how to address this, um, again, um, the continent, Africa, remains, um, you know, uh, at a loss uh, when 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 the dividends uh, arrive and as they continue to um, to arrive. So I think it is really important, as you said, that is important that they is some real thinking um, and that is enough that there is expertise on the continent. As much as we talk about a lot about lack of capacity. There, there's a need to bring academia, researchers, consultants um, who are um, very well acquainted with these issues together with government and industry and civil society to say, here's a platform. How do we address, um, you know, the dislocation that is caused by this disruption such that we continue to maintain the principle of the shared value paradigm? Hmm. So I hear a couple of things. One is that the for the Industrial Revolution, the fast pace and the disruptive nature of it is something for which neither the global north nor the global south in terms of laws and policies is on top of. That seems to be clear that the, the uh, tech giants if you wish, are leading uh, this exercise and it's cross-cutting and, and lawmakers are somewhat uh, caught by surprise. That said, it seems to me there's a difference between the impact of it on lawmakers and countries in the global south uh, and the impact that this sweeping fourth industrial revolution and, and its impact is, is having in the north such that it since they are the owners of the capital the north stands to benefit in in any way but that we can't say the same about the south am i seeing that difference correctly and if not uh, uh set me right you know sheila i think of it more in terms of um sort of in, in the ecosystem. So when we're thinking about industrialized nations trying to cope with gov a governance approach, a good governance approach to the impact of disruptive technologies, we're also thinking about it in the context of their own um, economic system, in the, in the context of their own labor, um, knowing that what makes these technologies disruptive is that it is coming for jobs. That's the idea. So whether it's skilled or unskilled, or unskilled, um, these technologies are coming for jobs. So um, both industrialized nations and developing countries are both seeking ways to address this issue. But you are absolutely right that because cap capital is, um, how would I put it, is predominantly native to industrialized nations, the returns on those capitals then come back to industrialized nations. 
So that is why, um, you know, the, when I think about this notion of participation, when we're talking about equity participation, um, that states, um, you know, African governments are beginning to adopt, um, there is an argument for that. Um, you know, finding ways of keeping more of the capital uh, locally. Um, so I, I think that um, you, you are right in terms of the capital issue, but the, in terms of the future of work issue, I think we should also actually speak to the safety net that a lot of industrialized systems may have in addressing this, in, in addressing, um, you know, uh, the impact of, of, of disruptive technologies in terms of dislocation of labor. So they, they might have more safety net systems than those of um, the developing world. So I think these are things that when we talk about an intelligentsia or like uh, a, a platform that allows um, academia and governments, civil society and industry in Africa to think through these things, they have to think through it with the ecosystem of the local environment at play, understanding mm. the structures um, that are at play that is different from the issues that face the industrialized nations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the future of work is going to be disrupted regardless of where you are. That's the, the baseline. Uh, the, the economic spin-offs uh, from uh, the fourth industrial revolution, that's another issue, depending on who controls the capital. So, the assumption is that at some point to succeed, African governments must themselves jump uh, onto the bandwagon and begin to uh, develop capital. Uh, is, is that something that requires laws being strengthened to attract investment in R&D and innovation? Um, how does Africa move to be also in that space in which it, uh, progressively the region uh, innovates and begins to control capital and begins to export uh, knowledge to other countries as uh, the revolution uh, gathers a pace? You know, that is an excellent question um, and one that I, I I would honestly say that I don't have, you know, a simple answer to. Um, you know, in addition to state equity participation, for example, there are a number of countries now, including, you know, um, the, the new Mali law that um, not just allows for state equity participation, but allows for citizen equity participation, which never used to be the case. Often you would just have these mining companies create a, you know, a local operation, uh, a local company that is either 100% owned by the shareholder, the shareholding company, or in this instance now with the expansion of state equity, the state owning some, um, some equity in the company. But there's now a mandatory um, requirement, basically mandatory um, um, allowances basically for citizen participation in these operations too, um, you know, a certain percentage that is required that it be owned by by locals. So I think um, these are some of the smaller ways in which, um, you know, policy is beginning to interact um, with this issue. I, I do think that more needs to be done for sure. Um, more needs to be done, but that more requires um, further thinking, deeper thinking, um, research studies that centers the, um, I'm going to use for lack of a better word, 
the African experience, but it's not really the African experience. It is important that um, you know, South Africa is able to do that research in the context of the South African experience, Botswana in the context of the Botswana experience, the local ecosystem, so that there is some real responsiveness of policy to that particular environment. One of the reasons I say that, let's, let's use the example of energy. One of the issues, infrastructure, including energy, is one that um, the deficit of it has been... Um, uh, a challenge with respect to development um, and with respect to mining investments as well. When when there is, um, you know, the feasibility studies or, you know, just um, exploration, there's also this assessment of the infrastructure um, in place um, to, to be able to assess the viability of an investment. In industrialized nations, often this infrastructure is already in place. In a number of African countries, sometimes they are not. But what is interesting about the African countries is also, you may also have a situation in which you don't have stranded assets. You can build new technologies. As we talk about, um, you know, the green revolution, um, you, you have uh, mining companies that are now being able to utilize, you know, solar powered uh, generated energy to, to power their mines. Um, and so, the question is, how does Africa tap into some kind of value chain that allows for minerals that are um, extracted from the continent to be built out uh, some of this infrastructure um, and then is put into, um, again, as an input into um, mineral extraction or such that it stays locally? Um, that's a very different kind of thinking from what an industrialized nation may be thinking in terms of how it retires a stranded assets that may no longer be green. Um, I, I think this is a critical issue. Another element is, you know, when we start to look at um, international civil society and when we talk about consumers who care about how green their products are, that is also beginning to impact notions of standard and you know and and the pricing of products. So, if Africa's um, extraction processes are greener, um, then the the question is that um, can that be priced into um, into the products that then benefits Africa in some way? I mean, there are so many different ways to think about this and a lot of brainstorming that can be done to really figure out all the different ways in which Africa can benefit from this system by taking into consideration, not just into consideration actually, by centering its own ecosystem so that it figures out how to respond adequately to the disruption and is able to maximize the benefits and 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 take advantage of, you know, the places where it, it is actually beneficial to it that these technologies are, are coming in at this time in a situation where there are still areas of development where you don't have stranded assets, where you can invest, uh, you know, sort of from the ground up um, into um, expansions, into consolidations that, that, benefit, that benefit citizens, that benefit the continent. Mm. Um, you you have very elegantly moved from the fourth industrial revolution to the intersection of uh, these disruptive technologies with what I might call 
the uh, baseline, the Africa baseline, which in some ways means Africa might uh, leapfrog certain things that Europe is not able to because Europe has first to deal with uh, these uh, stranded assets. But you've also recognized that somewhere along that uh, trajectory is the whole notion of strategic minerals. Because I think this question of both strategic minerals and critical minerals begs the question, strategic to whom, critical to whom and why? My sense is that when you say African leaders need to step back, and throw the cocktail of issues. This is what we are really talking about, that they have to come to this issue from different angles uh, because somewhere in that cocktail of issues is the sweet spot. But that will have to be a conversation for another time, Nyoma, because uh, we've come to the end of this round for now. Thank you very much for making the time to talk to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's been very insightful. Thank you so much, Sheila. It was great to have this discussion with you. Thank you.